That's the sixth time that I've seen that video, and I'm always struck by that last line. Grab somebody and pull them in. <clears throat> I couldn't agree more. That's what it's all about. Participation over observation. When in doubt, grab somebody and pull them in. We should put that in the tagline, the description of this core value. You might remember several months ago now, I talked about my family's house hunt. When I was appointed here back in March, I had to move on very short notice in only three weeks. And so we found an apartment as sort of a temporary stopgap measure and put some stuff in storage and then quickly began looking around for a house that we could buy for a more permanent situation. Um, Grace and I have moved a lot, uh, not on purpose, <laughs> not by design, that's just the way it has worked out. And we hope to be here for a long time and put down some roots and raise our kids. And so we were uh, hunting for a house that would be suitable for that. And uh, seven weeks ago, we actually closed on a condo over in Yacht Cove, just on the other side of the dam. And because we hope to be here for a while, we wanted to make it our own, you know? And so we've been doing a lot of remodeling. Some of you may be able to relate to that, especially if you've bought a house. Remodeling is always hard, but you know, if you're gonna do it, the best time to do it is before you move in. And so we've been um, working on that. I am definitely not a handyman, but I also definitely can't afford to pay anybody. So I've been doing it myself, even though I don't really know what I'm doing. And uh, of course, we've had a lot of uh, volunteer labor from, uh, from the church, and if it hadn't been for that, I don't think we would have gotten it done until Jesus came back. But anyhow, you know, one of, the problems with, uh, one of the problems with not knowing what you're doing is you just have no concept of how long it's going to take. And I mean, when you talk about no concept, I mean, I had no concept. It has taken, like, not a little longer, infinitely longer than I thought. But we're finally on the, on the short rows, as my grandfather would say, and uh, we're moving and, you know, we've gotten settled in. But, you know, lots of people have helped to make that possible. Uh, some people have just been there for a day or two. Some people have been there for hours and hours, and, uh, but everybody's done what they could, and we really appreciate that because we would not have been uh, able to, uh, to do it without them. But you know, we have had one slacker on our work crew. Uh, and you know what I'm talking about, right? You've all had that experience where you're working on something and everybody's doing pretty well. You know, some people might be more talented, some might have more energy, but you know, everybody's doing the best they can, except for that one person who's just not cutting it. You know, they didn't come to work, they came to chat, or they thought it was, a, and it's like, let's go, come on, because it pulls down the morale of everybody else. Do you know what I mean? Everybody else is giving it what they've got, and then you got the one guy, and everybody else is like, ah, you know, if he would just do his part, we'd be so much further along, and you, you know, you want to point out the obvious, you're frustrated, but you're too polite to say anything. Well, I'm not polite. And so I've been saying stuff, and I've been saying, you know, look, if you would have pulled your weight, we'd have been done by now. You know, I mean, you don't even have to do great. Just, just do your fair share. And of course, you know, I feed people when they come to my house to work. We got food and snacks. And I've even said like, why do I still feed you? You do nothing, you know? Uh, and I've been trying to insult his masculinity and to shame him into doing something, but I cannot get any work out of him. And so today I am pulling out the final stop. I'm going to publicly display his picture. Let's, let's see that picture of this slacker. There he is. <clears throat> I mean, I can't get him to do anything. <laughs> he hasn't painted not one single room. He didn't tear up any floor. He didn't lay any flooring. I mean, he's done nothing. You know, what's sad about that is, uh, no matter what I say, he just thumps his tail, thump, 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 and looks at me with that dumb expression, you know? And I always tell him, you know, it's a good thing you're cute and furry, because if you weren't cute and furry, I don't know how you'd make it through the world, you know? Uh, but it's sad because if he could help, just imagine if he could help, he would work around the clock to please his daddy and we'd be done a long time ago. Now, you know, we laugh about that, but I'll tell you what's not funny. What's not funny is that in every church, we got some people that are pulling their weight and some people that are not. 
And the problem with that is that Jesus did not say, come watch me. Jesus said, come and follow me. Jesus did not say, come and observe. He said, come and participate. Friends, Christianity is not a spectator sport. There are no spectators in the kingdom of God. There are only players. Jesus said, come and follow me. Come and be like me. Come and be like those who are following hard after me and learn from them. Come and do the things you see me doing. Come and participate. Come and be engaged in the advance of the kingdom of God. But we have some people who want to observe and not pull their weight. And you know, if we are gonna be serious about this core value of participation over observation, uh, it's gonna be countercultural. This isn't gonna happen by osmosis. We've gotta be strategic and intentional about this because we live in a culture of observation, don't we? We live in a culture that, you know, one of the key questions is, did you see that? Not, did you do that? We like to see things, right? We watch an obscene amount of television. We play virtual reality video games. We surf the internet consuming useless information and watching silly videos. I mean, we, we observe and we observe and we live in a culture of observation. But Christianity is not about observation. It's about participation. There are no spectators in the kingdom of God. Now, uh, I've been so busy remodeling my condo and moving that I've only had time to watch just a very little bit of football. It's the only thing on TV worth watching, and it's not really TV, it's football, okay? Um, just to get that straight. <clears throat> anyway, um, it, but anyway, it's the only thing I watch anyhow. And I hadn't had time to watch much of it, but I've got football on my brain because it's football season, so you all will forgive me for some football analogies if you're not a fan. Uh, one of the things that has occurred to me, uh, if we're going to learn to be participants, not just observers, is changing the way we view going to church. See, all too frequently, we view going to church kind of like we view going to a stadium. In a stadium, you've got 80,000 people observing and a couple hundred guys down on the field doing stuff. And if we view church that way, where we have about 2,000 on a normal Sunday here at Mount Horeb, around 2,000 between our services, if we have 2,000 people observing and just you know, watching me and the, and the choir or whatever, that's not good. Christianity, coming to church, is not like going to a stadium. It's like going to a weight room. You don't go to a weight room to observe. You go to a weight room to be put through exercises and to push yourself and to get stronger and better than you would have. I had a strength coach at Duke. He used to say, to win football, you gotta be bigger, stronger, and faster than your opponent. So if we're gonna start winning, boys, we gotta get bigger, stronger, and faster. We're like, good, that's, that's deep thoughts, William. Anyway, we gotta get bigger, stronger, and faster if we're gonna win in the game of life. Friends, because coming to church is not like going to a stadium. It's like going to a weight room. Now, one of the things that I love about football, and one of the reasons why I think it lends itself to this type of uh, message, participation over observation, is that football is the epitome of a team sport. Everybody's got to work together, and if, if somebody doesn't work together, they don't do their part, it's amazing how everything falls apart very quickly. And uh, especially that's true on the offensive line, probably more so than maybe anywhere else in sports. On, on the, that's where I played, on the offensive line. On the line, there are five men, but those five men have to work as if they were one unit. And if you've never played, you don't realize how much communication happens between the time they break the huddle and the time the ball is snapped. You know, they call the play, uh, and if depending on how the defense lines up and if they shift and if the linebacker's coming down or whatever, those linemen have got to communicate and they've got to do it in milliseconds before that ball is snapped and they've got to work as one, okay? So if you've got five guys up there, if four of them get a good block and the one remaining guy has a lookout block, the play isn't gonna go anywhere. You all know what a lookout block is? It's where the lineman tries to block somebody and misses them and says, look out! 
Look out! Not that that ever happened to me, but I've heard about it. Okay, let's just get that straight. Now, one of the ways that linemen learn to work together as a team is that every day in practice, you hit the football sled. And I know some of you don't know what a football sled is, so we have a picture of it available for you conveniently here this morning. That's a football sled. Those five blue dummies are all spring-loaded, and they're very heavy, and that coach there, you see, is riding on the back of it. And so all five linemen will get down in a stance, a three-point stance. The coach will blow the whistle. They fire off and hit the hit the sled, and then they have to drive it and drive it and drive it, and the coach rides on the back of it until they until he blows the whistle. They keep pushing, and if the linemen are in trouble, the coach will ride all the way across the field until the linemen cannot walk home. Uh, I've been there. I have, <laughs> I have had that happen, you see. Uh, it's very hard. That, that sled is spring-loaded, and it's heavy, and it's hard to push. Now, ideally, all five of them would come off the ball at exactly the same time, hit it the same, and push nice and evenly, and that sled would stay nice and straight. But most of the time, Some of the linemen are bigger and faster and stronger than some of the others. And so whichever side those guys are on, the sled's gonna tilt. Like if the right tackle is stronger than the left tackle, it's gonna tilt because he's pushing harder. It's very embarrassing for uh, the guys on the weaker side because it's an objective demonstration for anybody that's looking, those guys are weaker. They're not pushing as hard, you see. Friends, you know what most churches look like? Like a tilted football sled because some people are pushing harder than others. And the way it ought to be is nice and even with everybody pulling their weight, everybody doing their part. That's why here at Mount Hora, but we value participation over observation. And this, I would argue, is not just one of our core values here. It is core to the Christian faith and conveniently core to our Methodist DNA. Uh, John Wesley in the 1700s saw that there were all kinds of problems with society. And, you know, the interesting thing was everybody in theory was a Christian, Right? I mean, almost everybody was baptized and on the rolls of the local parish of the Church of England, and if they weren't there, they were part of one of the small dissenting groups. But, you know, there were, there were some deists and a few atheists in Wesley's day, but not nearly as common as now. I mean, Christianity was far and away the dominant religion. But what Wesley saw was that people didn't take it seriously. It wasn't personal. It wasn't vibrant. They were Christian in name only. And so a lot of what Methodism was about was giving them a method to be strategic and intentional and purposeful in how they lived so that they could have power, power over sin in their own lives and power to do things, to advance the kingdom of God and make a change, not just observe what's wrong and think somebody ought to do something, but to actually do it. Conveniently, that's very similar to our own day. There's a lot of similarities between the challenges and the culture that Wesley faced and the challenges and the culture that we face. And one of them, especially in the Bible Belt, is that lots of people are Christian in theory, <laughs> but how many of us take it seriously? How many of us are really pushing the sled, so to speak, as hard as we possibly can? I want to share with you this morning, friends, from uh, our passage in 1 Peter chapter 4. And in the first verse uh, that Paul read for you, uh, verse 7, right at the very beginning, Peter goes for the jugular (laughs) with the ultimate motivation. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Now, Peter did not know when the end was coming. He just knew that it is coming. We don't know when the end is coming. We just know that it is coming. So we're really in the same boat that Peter was in. But I want to present to you that I think that is as strong as motivation gets for a couple reasons. First of all, what it means is one day you're going to die. Your life here will not go on forever. 
You know, when you're young, that hadn't really sunk in. I mean, you know, I mean, you think, you know, in theory, yeah, we know, but it's mostly something that happens to everybody, but, you know, other people. But then you begin to realize, no, that, that's going to happen to me. I'm going to die too. And that means I only have so much time. And the Bible teaches us that one day, not only will your life come to an end, life as we know it on this planet will come to an end. And Pastor Ed asked us a moment ago, what do you believe? And we said, I believe that Christ shall come again to judge the quick and the dead. But do we really believe it? Do we live as if we believe it, or is it just words we say? Do we really live as if one day we will die and we will have to give an account for our lives? Do we really live as if we expect Christ to come back and judge both the quick and the dead? And if we think about that, how are we living? What will we say for ourselves? What kind of an account will we be able to give? You see, friends, when you realize that you're going to die, <laughs> and when you really let it sink in, and when you really let it sink in that you're going to be held accountable for how you live, it's very freeing because it gives you a great motivation hey, I've only got so much time, I better get busy. Not just busy doing stuff, we're good at that already. I mean busy making a difference, busy doing all that we can for the advance of the kingdom because we only have so much time. Eternity is long, this life is very short, you see. And so it's, it's very freeing, very motivating, you know? Hey, I, you know, I've only got so much time. Each chapter of life is only going to go on so long. I've got to make the most of the time that I've got. Whereas if we live like we're going to live forever, what motivation do we have, you know? You know, I know I really should be a better person. I need to work on these character flaws. And, you know, I will. I'll get around to it eventually. I got plenty of time. I should spend more time with my family. You know, and I will when my kids are grown. Wait, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? That's totally illogical. You know, one thing that really drives me crazy is Christianity uh, is, you know, said to be passe and illogical. I think secularism is illogical. I think it's totally illogical to think that you're not going to be held accountable for what uh, you do. What that means is your life doesn't really count. What you do, whether you're a good person or a bad person, doesn't really matter. I think it's totally illogical to think that this world just, you know, happens to exist and there's no personal creator who's over it all. I think that's nuts. I think it's, I think it's crazy to think that there's not absolute truth once and for all, hard and fast, right and wrong. I think it's crazy to think that we all seem to have free will, <laughs> and we all seem to know what's right and what's wrong, and none of that matters because there is no creator, there is no ultimate standard, and we're not going to be judged. I think that's, that's nuts. That's lunacy. I think the Christian position, that there is a personal God, that the intuition we have, that our choices matter, and that there really is a right and wrong written into the fabric of our being and the fabric of the universe, I think it's far more logical to believe that than it is to believe the alternative. The end of all things is at hand. Peter says. Therefore, friends, it's time to get busy because there are no spectators in the kingdom of God. There are only players. Peter goes on in the rest of that verse to say, uh, therefore, be of sound judgment and a sober spirit. I love that. Flows very logically out of what he just said. Because if you know your life is going to end, if you know you're going to have to give an account, if you know that Christ is going to come again to judge both the quick and the dead, then you'll be able to be of sound judgment and a sober spirit, Right? You'll be able to judge correctly what life is about and how you ought to spend it and what you ought to do and, and assess things from a sober perspective. But if you live as if you're going to live forever, <laughs> you're living under an illusion. It's almost like being intoxicated, intoxicated with foolishness. You can't possibly have a sober spirit when you live that way. But if you know that the end of all things is at hand, then you'll be empowered, friends, to have sound judgment and a sober spirit. Now, uh, you might be thinking, well, I'm glad he's talking to other people this morning. Uh, that's good for them. 
But of course, I don't have anything to offer, so I can tune out now. Well, that's not what the Word of God teaches. And I'm going to tell you something. I believe what the Word of God teaches, not what others have told you, or what your low self-esteem or false humility tells you. We were talking about this this week, and on one of our staff times, Jack commented that he's always amazed how many people will say, I can't sing. And he'll say, well, why, why, how do you know you can't sing? Well, somebody told me that when I was a kid. And we went around the room, and so many of our other staff members were saying, well, you know, somebody told me this, that I wasn't good at this when I was a kid, and I believed it. Isn't that crazy? And I, and I never questioned it. I never tried it. And that's crazy, isn't it? So many of us, we live under that kind of delusion, don't we? We think we have nothing to contribute. Maybe we see somebody else and we're not as good as them, so we, we think we got nothing to offer. Seriously? I mean, you've got to be kidding. What does the Word of God say? Verse 10, each one, he doesn't say some people, he doesn't say pastors, he doesn't say the super talented and the gifted. He says each one has been given what? A special gift. Everybody. There is no such thing as a child of God that he is left bereft of a spiritual gift. Each one, Peter says, has a special gift. And how is it special? Well, I think there's some commonality in our spiritual gifts. I mean, you might have the gift of teaching, I might have the gift of teaching, but you know, I, there's some overlap there, but there's also some, so, so some uniqueness there. The way that manifests itself is gonna be different. The way you would teach something is different than the way I would teach it. The illustrations and analogies and quotes and things you would draw upon are different because you're a different person and you've been influenced by different people in different circumstances. You see what I'm saying? Right? I mean, that's just one example. We could cite many other examples. You have gifts I don't have and vice versa, you see? And that's the way the body of Christ is supposed to be. We're not supposed to all have the same gifts. And friends, let me tell you this too. Uh, spiritual gifts do not confer status. Spiritual gifts confer responsibility. Spiritual gifts do not give us status. They give us responsibility. It's not a matter of, you know, his gift is more important than mine or, you know, I'm, I'm not important. No, it's, this is what God has given me to do. This is who God has called me to be, and I'm going to do that to the best of my ability and just trust God that he's using it in a way that maybe I don't ever see, you see? And when we're doing that, when we trust God, when we're all working together, the analogy that comes to my mind is that the church, the body of Christ, it fits together like a beautiful stained glass window with God as the master artist working all this together. Can we get that stained glass window up here, please? Thank you. This is the principal window in Duke Chapel where I did my undergraduate work, so it's a special place. and had a lot of special meaning for me. Uh, if you look at it closely or if you've been to, uh, you know, a, a cathedral or any really, really nice chapel, what you'll notice is with stained glass windows, uh, they're always comprised of several small pieces of glass. Right? There's no big pains when you go to a really nice chapel. It's several little pieces of glass, and it's always amazing to take time and just look at them. I've you know, had the opportunity to visit some cathedrals, and you can just sit there all day and just stare both at the one, you know, the one picture and then how that forms the larger. It's incredible. And you think, man, what kind of patience and diligence and planning it must have taken to put all those pieces together. Now, friends, let me ask you a question. Which piece is the most important? All of them, right? Because if you took one piece out, it would ruin the whole window, wouldn't it? If you took one piece out, it wouldn't be the same. You'd think, what happened there? There's a hole. And friends, that's the way it is in the body of Christ. When the lost and hurting world looks at us, if they see that you are not using your gift, it's like a pane that's missing from a beautiful stained glass window. There's just something not right. And it's not a matter of one pane, one piece of glass being more important. It's a matter of each piece of glass fitting together according to God, the master artist's plan to form a beautiful whole. Friends, are you using your gift? Are you participating or are you just observing? Are you a spectator or are you a player? You know, 
We ought to just be glad we're in God's window. <laughs> Don't worry about what part you are, or what color piece of glass you are. Just be glad you're in the window. Now, by the way, uh, I think one of the strengths that we have here at Mount Horb is uh, that our own pastoral team is really a good example of this. Having a larger pastoral team, I think, helps because you're able to see, for example, how all this fits together. I mean, we've got Ed over here. Ed is uh, our elder statesman, by far the sharpest dressed gentleman I've ever met in my entire life. Brother always looks like he just stepped out of GQ. Uh, also a local leader in our community, a town councilman. Jeff is a good leader. Faye is warm and caring. Nick and Trevor are young and cool. And I'm the team nerd. <clears throat> and every team needs a nerd so the others can feel better about themselves. Remember that, it's an important job. <clears throat> I do it well too. Now you might be thinking, okay, so I have a gift. Well, what is it? Well, friends, what are your natural talents? What are you naturally interested in? What is it that stirs your heart when you look at what's wrong with the world, the problems? You know, what is it that seems to stir your heart more than it stirs other people's hearts? Oftentimes I find that our gifting lies in that area. Or ask yourself, what is it that made a difference in your life? You know, what spoke to you? I mean, for me, preaching has made a big difference in my life, so I'm passionate about preaching. Teaching has made a big difference in my life, so I'm passionate about it. You see, that may not always be the case. But I find oftentimes it is that what has spoken to you and formed and shaped you is oftentimes dinging me a clue as to where your gifting might lie or your natural gifts, your passions, your abilities, the things that stir you. If that doesn't work, we have a spiritual gifts inventory available free of charge on our website. And of course, there's always the old-fashioned trial and error. Try something. And if you find, you know, this, I thought this was going to be a good fit, but it's not, well, try something else. But there's no reason not to get involved. There's never a reason not to get involved. One of the great things, especially about being at a church this size, there's always a way to get involved. And you know, it's amazing. I mean, I hope as we continue to grow and start new missions opportunities, initially, I'm sure we will have openings. But friends, we really shouldn't have as many ongoing openings in terms of volunteer labor as we do right now. I'm just being honest with you. Did you know that right now our children's ministry needs more than 50 volunteers? That should never happen. Enough said. <laughs> you get the idea. You need to plug in, get off the bench, and get into the game. It's not a matter of observation, friends. It's a matter of participation because there are no spectators in the kingdom of God. There are only players. Now, Peter uh, now gives us even more motivation. If the fact that you're going to have to give an account for your life and you know that it's going to end and you only have so much time, if those things don't motivate you enough, then for goodness sakes, use your gift because People matter. Faye preached on that in here last week, one of our other core values. People matter, and they really do, don't they? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, you might think people don't matter until you're the one who's hurting, and then you find out that, oh, wait a minute, people do matter. You see, and I find that oftentimes God puts us through things to keep us awake and alive and alert to the needs of others. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. There's somebody right here in this room that needs you to be using your gift, and they might be watching you, and you don't even know it. And they'll probably never come up to you and say, you know, I really need you to use your gift in my life. That's probably not going to happen. But as a pastor, I know that people are hurting. Uh, and I know that there's things that go on behind closed doors. We keep up a good front. We don't let on. But I know there's needs and hurt and pain. And people need you to use your gift. Don't let them down. Peter says, uh, as each one has received a special gift, employ it, therefore, serving one another. Use your gift because people matter. And if that doesn't do it, friends... Then do it, he says, as good stewards 
of the manifold grace of God as each one has received a special gift. Employ it serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God has given us a stewardship. God has entrusted us with the gift of life and with spiritual gifts to boot, and he wants us to use it wisely. You all have, hopefully, most of you have a 401k. Some of you have a 101k. I have an 01k, okay? You know what I'm saying? But I got an account anyhow. There ain't nothing in it, but I got an account, okay. But you all are steward, you're trusting somebody to steward that money, right? You hope they're not throwing darts at a dartboard to choose how they're gonna invest your money. You hope that they're doing research and, and thinking it through. You hope they're not embezzling it. Friends, God has invested in you and he's counting on you to steward what he has given you wisely and well. So at the end of things, you'll be able to give a good report like you receive a report, friends, from your financial institution. If all else fails, uh, if you're not motivated yet to use your gift, then use it to show gratitude to God. When I was growing up, my mom always emphasized to me the importance of receiving gifts well. You know, if somebody gives you a shirt, next time you're around them, make a point to wear that shirt so that, you know, they'll see that you appreciate it. Or write a good thank you note and try to mention, you know, specifically that gift and why it was important, how you're going to use it. You know, be particular and be thinking about the art of receiving a gift well and showing gratitude. And unfortunately, all of us have had the experience, have we not, where we picked something out, we thought it was just going to be perfect for that person. Wanting a generic gift, wanting, you know, the trendy thing, it was something we, we just thought, man, that's going to be just it. And they were like, thanks. Right? No gratitude. How'd it make you feel? You know? How'd it make you feel? And probably all of us have also had the experience where, you know, you were given something. And you look back on it and you realize, you know, I never sent a thank you note. I never showed any gratitude. I just put it on a shelf. I probably hurt that person. It's too late now to go back. How do you think God feels when we just put the gift on the shelf? How do you think God feels when we don't send so many thanks, any gratitude? When Grace and I got married, we, uh, we got married down in Somerville, where she's from. And uh, my parents, of course, were still living in Spartanburg, where I'm from, and we were in Kentucky, you know, so we came down and got married and went on our honeymoon and went back up to Kentucky. And meanwhile, my parents hauled all of my gifts, all of our gifts, back up to my house in Spartanburg. And a couple weeks later, we put a date on the calendar, and her parents came up, and we came down, and we had this big family, you know, gift opening party. And, uh, you, know, you, you know, you can't open all your gifts right there on the spot, but we were, you know, we're opening, my sister's jotting it down, who gave us what so we could thank them, and... Grace and I still laugh about this. We came to the one box and we opened it up and tucked into the top of that box, tightly into the cardboard, there was a note. But the note wasn't to us. It was to the girl who had given it to us, congratulating her on her wedding. <laughs> she had re-gifted that without even opening the box. And to make it worse, Grace knew the girl who had given it to her and who had written the note. And so we had to consult Emily Post. Do we thank the person who originally gave it? Do we thank the re-gifter? Do we thank both of them? Do we thank no one? I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what we do in this situation. I don't know what we did, but we still laugh about it. I know that much. How do you think God feels when we don't even open the box? How do you think God feels when we don't even open the box? And what will we say when our day comes, when our life comes to an end and we stand before the judgment throne of Christ? Will we say, Lord, I didn't even open the box. I never tried to serve. I never made a difference. I lived for myself. 
Will we be able to say, God, I gave it all I had. I, I tried hard to be a good steward of the manifold grace of God. I tried hard to discover what you had given me to do and to do it. And some of you may be thinking, you know, I don't have much time left. I'm getting old. Well, make the most of the time you got left. Make the most of the time you got left. You know, I'm always amazed what an impact for Christ people can make in their latter years. I've known a lot of people who, you know, they live for themselves. They didn't walk with God, but in their latter years, they got hot for God. And they made a big difference. Friends, open up the box and be good stewards of what God has given you. Show gratitude as each one has received a special gift employ it serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God because the end of all things is near. Therefore, friends, be of sound judgment and a sober spirit.